On January 6th, a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol building because they were upset with the results of the presidential election. How did this happen in America? What fundamentally enabled this shameful event? What philosophic ideas and trends brought us here? And what do they portend for the future of freedom? I'm Ilan Jerno. Welcome to the New Ideal Podcast. I'm joined today by my colleague, Onkar Gathe. Hey, Onkar. Hi, Ilan. We're going to analyze the moral meaning and significance of this attack on the U.S. Capitol. And for those of you joining us, we're streaming on YouTube, Facebook, and Zoom. You're welcome to submit your questions. The best way to reach us is using the YouTube Super Chat function. I thought that we should start, Ankar, with just reactions to this. And I, I had a very strong reaction to what happened this time last week. And in some ways, it was... Uh, sort of it really shook me. I think a lot of people had a similar kind of experience. And the thing that came to my mind was not in, in the sense of the death toll or the physical destruction, but just this, the magnitude and the severity of the event. What came to mind was 9-11 in terms of how sort of horrifying it was to see. I just want to get a sense of what, how did, what was your take on it? I had initially a less strong reaction than that. And I've seen other people, you're not the only one who bringing up that what it reminds them of, of is 9-11. And that some people have said like, this is the worst political event they've seen since 9-11. I didn't have that reaction initially. And I think partly because of the kind of buffoonery that seemed to be part of this, so the people dressed up as Vikings, and it seemed unprofessional. But the more I've learned about what actually happened at the Capitol, or at least some of what, so learn more about what actually transpired on January 6th, and the, both reactions to it, but just the, the amount of pre-planning that seems to be involved, or at least pre-discussion, of we need to storm the Capitol, we need to attack it. I have a much stronger reaction now than I initially had watching it on TV. And I had a, I mean, I thought it's it's a really horrible event, but I do think now that it's it's not on the scale of 9-11, but that's more because 9-11 was a more successful attack. Um, they, but it's similar in its striking, 9-11, I think the, it, attack was designed to strike at the heart of America. If you think of the targets, it's the American economic strength, so the, the, the attack on New York, military strength, the attack on the Pentagon, and there was an attempt to get to the Capitol, which failed. That, and that's to get to the heart of America's political um, center. And this was an attack on the American government and it's sort of the essence and ideals of the American government. And that is re a really significant political event. Yeah, the, the significance and just how serious this is, I think it warrants extended discussion. So we might go beyond our usual length today and just to make sure we cover enough of what's going on. I, I wanted to touch and pick up on a couple of things you said. So. You know, with 9-11, what was significant, one aspect of it was a lot of people were surprised and they said, how did this happen? It came out of the blue and, you know, there was sort of this uh, sense of uh, uh, sh shock that was 
nobody could have seen this coming. We had no clue this was going to. And there's something about the what happened at the Capitol that is exactly the opposite, which is this is being talked about so much that there has to be some pushback. There has to be some sort of, uh, and I think that you mentioned some pre-planning. I've seen all kinds of accounts of uh, Facebook groups and, and people sharing, uh, sort of riling each other up to do this. So in, in a certain way, if you just look at the last few months, sort of the, during the elections when the president said he wasn't going to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, he wasn't open to doing that. And then to the kind of comments you get during the since the election uh, ended, um, so there's ways in which you could have seen this coming. Uh, it was announced, in effect. Uh, and and uh, but but there's a way in which, if you sort of zoom out, this was something you could have seen you could have seen earlier than even some of the statements I'm referring to. It's the same is true in 9/11. So one of I mean, both you and I worked at ARI when 9-11 happened, and it was a shocking, horrifying event. And there was the same kind of, as you said, like, how could this happen? And that's both, that it was, it was unbelievable in a certain sense that people could ask that question, because both at the concrete level, there was, I mean, there was, Al-Qaeda outfits that had tried to hijack multiple planes before in, in Asia, before not, they succeeded with 9-11. There was a prior attempt on the World Trade Center by the same type of people, the same mentality. And so just at the concrete level that you couldn't see it coming. And then at the wider, more abstract level, there's um, countries, regimes, and institutions telling you online, and I mean, before in pamphlets and things like that, that this is what they would like to do. And there's something similar in this event that when you look at the online discussion of it, um, you see there was a lot of concrete discussion about it. And if you think then more widely about the, the kind of rhetoric that our country is being stolen from us, the elections being stolen and so, like, what is the recourse to that if you really think you're being um, defrauded of the essence of being an American citizen, that you don't have a representative government anymore, and the people who seem to be representatives are all frauds and, and have got there illegally, the, that you get people who say, and who follow through an action that we're going to take up force in order to rectify this, it should not be surprising anymore that it's surprising in regard to Islam if you have a whole bunch of clerics and so telling them that the West is the enemy that has to be destroyed or else Islam will disappear. So, and that people, there's some subset of people who are willing to use force as a result of that. I don't think it should be surprising. I want to come back to the sort of the climate of, of violence and the protests. And we've seen a lot of that in 2020, of course. Uh, but one issue that I think it's important to get to early in this conversation is what exactly are we referring uh, to? How do, how do we think about this? So a lot of the coverage is sort of heavily slanted in a certain way, or not, not slanted, but people are putting a certain slant on it and saying, well, this was a coup, this was a putsch, this was a, an insurrection, this was sedition. And all of those have, have their 
sort of very specific meanings, and it's important that we use the right idea for what we're trying to, what we observed uh, a week ago at the Capitol. So how do you think about what actually happened? What, what do you think best characterizes the events of January 6th? Um, I think of it in two ways, and I'm curious the way you're thinking about it, and also what you said, you had a stronger reaction, which I think is, was right. You have a stronger reaction than I had when I first saw some of the footage of what was happening, of the way you were thinking about it when you first saw it. I think there's an understandable reason that people are talking about sedition. When you look at what sedition, the legal definition of sedition is, part of what is referenced, which I, which I think you can view the event like this, is that one aspect or one way in which you could be guilty of sedition is that if you're using force, and I'm quoting here from the legal uh, statute, quote, to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof, close quote. And if you think of what um, the, the images that and the video that one has seen and the accounts that one has seen. It's both, I think, clearly an attempt to disrupt the legal proceedings and to count the uh, vote for the electoral college and to certify Biden as the next president. And it, there was seizing and taking of property, Pelosi's and other uh, representatives' proper, property. So you can see why it would be put, in particular, if you're thinking of how can we prosecute these people, you can see why we put under sedition. I think of it as it was a terrorist attack. And I think this is one of the parallels to 9-11. If you think of terrorism as it's the use of physical force, usually violence, so a, a immediate, swift, deadly use of force, but the use of physical force to um, achieve political goals, to terrorize to invoke and instill fear in people so that they change their political direction. In this case, that they change their votes and somehow, as part of Trump was talking, that, that Pence does the right thing and the Republicans or the strong Republicans, as one of the way Trump was putting it in the earlier in the day, do the right thing. It's, there's an attempt to create fear and terror so that politically, People change course, change their vote. And that is how I think rightly terrorism is thought about. And in that sense, uh, and, and crucially, it, I think if you put it in the terror, it, it's a, a, a terrorist attack on the Capitol, it's, it, it highlights the importance of this episode. So my reaction was, part, I was trying to think back to it. I have, is it, I also have a kind of slow burn thing. So I, I reacted very strongly initially, and then I had, so it got worse over time. My reaction was partly sort of recalling what we saw in the summer where certain cities were in flames and there was the loss of control, sort of the, the smashing of the rule of law in many cases where it feels like people running amok in the streets. Uh, and here, the parallel I saw Sort of my my reaction to it was, this is the Capitol building. It is a, it's not only a symbolic and symbolically important one. 
it is actually where the laws of the country are made. And I disagree with so much that comes out of uh, the Congress all the time. But to me, it, it has such importance. And it's in a certain way, in a totally secular, I think of it as a sacrosanct. If, if that's overrun, then we really have a problem. And so, so that was sort of the, the, the initial reaction to it and the aspect of it. But it was also that it, you, you described it as buffoonery. And the thing that alarmed me is that this is a, there was a kind of banality to it. These people, however organized some of them were and however sort of premeditated some of this was and some of it wasn't, the, the banality of it makes it seem less bad than it actually is. And it's important to kind of piece together that this is not just some building. This is the building that is central to what the government is for and what it's supposed to be doing. And when, you know, I, I was alarmed to see that it was so easy for these people. They, I know some of them brought weapons, but that wasn't the way they walked in. A lot of them were able to walk in through the doors. Some of them broke through windows and so forth, but they, it was so easy. It was almost as if, and I don't think this is quite accurate, but the initial reaction I had was, so weak are the defenses for the Capitol building and so so easily breached is it by what I would think of as barbarians or people who are sort of uncivilized and, and trying to use force to overturn what is a legal process that we, you know, is it's central to the operation of the government. And I have such respect for the US government as a system, not for the laws that come out of it. Um, so to me, that was the frightening part of it, the, 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 the sense of um, there's a kind of fragility that uh, I think we saw on display that day. Um, I, I want to pick up on, sorry, I want to pick up on the thing you said about terrorism. Okay. Yeah, so uh, you, you know, I think one of the things that wasn't obvious initially was that some of the people storming the building were shouting hang Pence, and, sh and some of the people had come with the intent of actually committing crimes. Um, I just want to sort of just piece that together and, and sort of strengthen the analogy that you made, which is, is it the case that people coming in there really thought, yeah, we're going to overturn this vote, and then we're going to run the country in the sense of, yeah, if, if you're really running a coup, that would be the outcome. And I think this was not didn't seem like that. This was more about striking fear. And I think the, what crystallized it for me is some of the pictures that came out of um, Congress men and women just crouched on the floor as if that, you know, literally fearing for their lives. Yes. Um, so both coup insurrection to me suggest that there's some um, aftermath of the attack where it's okay now we're the ones in control we're the ones wielding power we're in charge and i don't think there was that element here the, the most you could say to make it put it in that vein is it would be now trump's back in charge um but it's not here the perpetrators that we're seizing power it's i think much more as i said it's invoked fear terror in the government so that it changes courses and they sort of officially legally put Trump back in power. I mean, part of what Trump said earlier in the day is if just a few things are sent back to the states and so on, then I'll have won and I'll be president. And so you can think of it as, as some of them may have had that kind of goal, but it's still, it's we're gonna terrorize the people to change their vote 
so that we got what we want. And it, it's, I don't put it as a riot because I think it was too much. There's, there's an actual goal of invoking terror, fear, and getting change in political direction. And I would, I mean, we'll come back, as you said, uh, we should talk about so, some of the, the sort of the context in the 20th century for other protests, other violence we've seen. And I would put some of what happened with Black Lives Matter as terrorism. So, and I would make this distinction, we can come back and talk more broadly about what was going on in the summer and earlier, but there's a difference between having a protest that gets out of hand and there's sort of an indiscriminate smashing of store windows of looting, just as say you have a sporting event and the team wins and people come out and then this happens unfortunately too often, People come out in the streets and then celebrating, and then it turns into there's a riot element to it, and they're smashing, overturning cars and things like that. That's different than when there's an attack on a police station or, or in a federal building, and we want to drive out the police. And there's a political goal there. It's defund the police or get rid of the p police, abolish the police. And they're hoping to get that political goal through, passed by invoking fear, by terrorizing people. And there was that element, I think. Um, and there was that element here and both fall under, I think the, the heading of terrorism. So we should talk a bit about responsibility because that's one of the big issues. And, and in thinking about this, I, we should say something about the, so what would you, you said earlier, people sort of putting yourself in their position they they see themselves as trying to right a wrong and what was that wrong and how, how do they see it and i think the big story here is the claim that donald trump made for for weeks and weeks and then uh at the rally that same day that the election was stolen there's a significant fraud uh and you can see if people believe that then they, and they feel like they've been disenfranchised or that the government's being corrupted, then you can understand why in their mind it would be, well, we now have to do something about this. Now, that's not, it, it, there's a whole set of questions here about what is the evidence for the claim? What would you do if this were true? What would it look like to resolve some kind of crisis like that? Because I think it would be true if, if there were significant evidence that elections on a widespread scale were uh, so manipulated or, or uh, corrupted, then there would be a crisis. And I think something significant would be afoot. But what's your take on that side of the, so thinking about the, the part of the story that people walking into that situation had in their mind? If you look at what Trump said on the 6th, and it's certainly going back to before that, I think there is, a moral responsibility here of, of um, inspiring people to do this. There's a difference here between moral responsibility and legal responsibility. So if does it legally meet the standard of incitement, of inciting a mob or a group to carry out an attack and here an attack on the Capitol? That, I'm not a legal expert, Part of what I've read, I think it, it's unlikely it meets the legal standard. 
but does it meet the moral standard? I think it does. And it's, you have to get, take seriously that what Trump is saying and what is telling his crowd, and it's a huge crowd, is it's not a metaphor when he says, oh, the election's been stolen. He means it literally. And he says it a number of times if you watch or read a transcript of the speech he gives. Uh, it's almost an hour or maybe a little bit longer than an hour speech he gives to the, the crowd that then goes uh, and marches towards the Capitol. It's, this is theft. It's been stolen. He goes so far to say, that, and I'm quoting, the, quote, this is the most corrupt election in the history maybe of the world. You know, you could go third world countries, but I don't think they had hundreds of thousands of votes and they don't have voters for them. And it continues from there, but close quote. It, this is the most corrupt election in the history of the world. It's more corrupt than what is happening with Putin's Russia or under communist Russia or communist China or what has happened in so many African countries or what has happened in South America, it's the most corrupt election in the history of the world. And if that's what you're telling people, that I live worse than under Soviet Russia, a communist China, that's what my government is. The idea that some would think, okay, the only solution to this is to fight, to fight with everything that I have, um, and it's to go, I might not, it might not be effective, but what else can you do if you live under the most corrupt government in the history of the world? And it's not, this is not, you can't dismiss this as, oh, he's just joking or he doesn't really mean it. It's a significant strand of what he's arguing and what he has been arguing, but what he argued on, or it's a little generous to call it an argument, but of what he's saying on the 6th, and that, that this is going to lead to people, and there's people dressed in combat fatigues and so on, that this is going to lead to people taking up arms, that one shouldn't be surprised. You, you know, you touched on the claims about the election, and I find it, it's just hyperbolic if you think that is this the most corrupt election ever? Is, I, I don't want to get into refuting it because it's just, it's on its face. It's not even plausible. I, I can think of many elections. I mean, Saddam Hussein in Iraq many years ago won 97% of the vote. Uh, <laughs> the, during the civil war in Syria, Assad still won as if that, that, you could, that you can find so many examples of just farcically uh, ridiculously corrupt elections and all. So it's it's not even remotely plausible. So I want to get so just to dig into this because I think there's a. I mean, I, I know there's a philosophic issue here about thinking of what would count as evidence and how should you think about what's going on, and what has Trump put forward, what has his surrogate, what has his surrogates put forward, and how should one process that if you're a citizen looking at what we've been sort of experiencing the last few months. My view is that everything Trump says is arbitrary and arbitrary in the objectivist philosophy. So in Ayn Rand's philosophy is a, you can think of it as a technical term. It doesn't mean much different than what arbitrary means it, in when people use it. It's arbitrary. There's no evidence. There's uh, you're not 
offering any support, any facts, any argument, any logic to support the claim that you're putting forth. It indeed, what it ends up meaning is like, I feel this, I have an emotion that something like this is happening and that's good enough for me and it should be good enough for anyone else. And I think of Trump as everything he says is arbitrary. He has no interest at all in whether there's evidence or arguments or reason or logic in support of what he's saying. It's, I feel it, so I want it to be true, so why isn't it a true? And why shouldn't I accept this? And he, he has the same perspective, I think, on his people, as he often calls them, my people, our movement, um, that it's like, I don't need evidence, arguments, facts. Why should you? And in that context, I think it's, it's and this is part of what objectivism stresses as well, it, you don't address this and say, oh, no, look, here's counter evidence, counter arguments. There's absolutely no interest in what the evidence or arguments are. And I would take it, it, it's not the essence of what he's arguing, but I would take the, one of the most telling things in his the hour plus speech that he gives is he repeats a claim that has been um, right, I mean, often debunked. But this is part of what I mean is it doesn't matter and it doesn't matter to him. And he thinks it shouldn't matter to his followers that it's been debunked. And this is the claim. So it's not even about the election. It's the claim that Oprah Winfrey used to like him. And she liked him so much that when she was um, producing her last episodes before the, the show closed, I think it closed or ended in 2011, he was among her last five guests. And he tells this to the crowd that she used to, I'm quoting now, uh, Oprah used to be a friend of mine. I was on her last show, her last week, she picked the five outstanding people. And I don't think she thinks that anymore. Once I ran for president, I didn't notice there were too many calls coming in from Oprah. But believe it or not, she used to like me. And I was one of the five outstanding people, close quote. And it didn't happen. He wasn't the la he was on a show in 2011. He wasn't among the last five that guests she, she had. This is completely made up, and it's been pointed out more than once that this is completely made up. And he doesn't care. It's so it's not a lie that it's oh I've been caught in a lie. It's I don't care if what I'm saying is true or false. If there's facts or not, if there are arguments or not, and you shouldn't care. You, my followers, shouldn't care. So the speech is couched as I'm going to give you all the evidence of how this was an election fraud, uh, most of which is ridiculous what he brings up, but it's the idea that he cares if this is actual evidence or not. It's, he doesn't care one iota. So I, two things in that I wanted, one of them I wanna press back on a bit to see what you think of this. So, okay, fine. So he doesn't care if, you present him with something that contradicts it or evidence that to the opposite. But there are people who are saying, well, look at this particular voting place. Here's a guy and he seems to be stuffing ballots or they're saying, here's a, a, a person. So this, it looks like evidence. 
And, you know, so to, to people who weren't in that polling station, they weren't observing it, it, it sounds like, well, there's something here. Do you still think of that as it's in the same category? Uh, no. But, well, in essence, what do you mean by the same category? The same category is it's it, arbitrary? Yeah, like I don't, I made this up. I want it to be true. I don't care if it's true or not. Yeah, I think there's such a thing. I, and actually, when I teach about the arbitrary and I have enough time to cover it, I cover that there's such a thing as the arbitrary assertion of evidence. Um, so it's don't accuse me of in, indulging in the arbitrary and just making stuff up and having no uh, arguments and no evidence. Uh, no, no, here's evidence for what I'm saying. But there's no reason to think that what you're referring to is evidence. And so it's to try to disguise that what you're doing is just indulging in the arbitrary. You don't actually have any evidence. You're just pretending that, oh, isn't this evidence? And you can throw out all kinds of facts and say, well, doesn't this support that? And if there's no reason to think it does, one, or if there might have been some, maybe this fact supports it, but then you think, and you think more about it, and either it's, well, what you're alleging is a fact isn't actually a fact, or even if it were true, it doesn't support um, what you're saying that it supports. If you keep maintaining that this is evidence, then you're back to you're engaged in the arbitrary. I think, I don't know um, how many people have listened to the, I listened to the whole call that was recorded of Trump and some of his lawyers and I think his chief of staff it wasn't clear. I mean, if you don't hear them on the recording, you don't know if they're in the room or not. His call to the Georgia state election officials, I don't know if you listened to that, but it's very interesting. Um, and particularly for people who are worried about the state of the, the election, the processing of votes and so on, many of the things that Trump or his lawyers bring up the Georgia state officials say, we've looked into that. Um, one of them, here's two that come up. One is, it's how many dead people voted? And it, Trump or his lawyers are saying, well, there's 5,000 dead people in, in the state of Georgia who voted. And, so, and they say, no, we've looked into that. We found two. And if after that, you keep repeating, oh, no, there's 5,000 dead people who voted and so on. That's arbitrary. And it's not evidence of election fraud. But you can keep maintaining it. And it looks like, yeah, I'm concerned with evidence. Here's 5,000 votes from people who are dead. But you have no reason to think of that as supporting your argument anymore. Another one is, uh, and I think this was repeated in the January 6th, the, um, his, his, his speech, was all kinds of people from out of state voted in Georgia. And they again tell him on the call, we've looked into that. And it's people who moved out of the state of Georgia and then moved back. And his reaction's incredulous. Like, really, people move out of a state and then they love so much, so they come back and so on. He's not interested in, and they go on, they go on to tell him, well, this happened over many years. And so it's not like they moved and then the next week or they, everybody decided they're moving back and so on. And it's, he's not interested. And, oh, okay, so my evidence doesn't support what, I, like what I'm saying. Yeah, it's true people moved out. That's true. But you don't have, I don't have, they moved back. And if you just keep repeating that, it looks like you're concerned with evidence, but it's a facade that you're concerned with evidence. 
so I, I want to connect this to something that's come up in, in the chat, uh, the super chat, and also something that I've been thinking. A number of the people who came to, to this event at the, the rally and then who, who then marched on the Capitol building, there was evidence that a number of them were followers of this, this thing called QAnon, which is this massive conspiracy theory, which Trump has sort of winked at and sort of it's not clear how much he knows about it, but he he like he said that he likes the fact that those people support him, and in, within this mythology of the conspiracy theory, Trump has a big role. He's sort of a, a central figure uh, in the sense of playing out a part in in this big scheme. And so you you just you said about the arbitrary that it's this disregard for whether it's true or not, and this I wish it to be true. And that, to me, there's there's a strong connection there between people who are engaged with conspiracy theories, and and then people who and part and this goes to part of what's the appeal of Trump to many people, not everyone, but I think a lot of people, is that he's sort of like this savior figure, almost like a religious figure. They're they're really loyal to him. They're flagged with his name. They're you know they're they're committed to him. So the this kind of we're not really concerned with whether there was, I mean, the, were the people who marched on, on, on the Capitol building aware of in, in detail of real evidence of fraud, I, of election fraud? I don't think so. I think they heard Trump say it and they followed him in the same way that they hear things from whatever conspiracy theory outlet they listen to and they believe it in, in the same, I mean, the, the, one analogy that's been made to this, which I thought was apt, if you remember the, so-called Pizzagate incident, where someone who follows one of these conspiracy theories, the QAnon, got so riled up that in the basement of a, of a pizzeria in, in Washington, D.C., there, there were people held hostage and there were children being abused. And so he brought a weapon. He drove across state lines to this pizzeria. And he, he got there and he said, I'm here to liberate the, the people who held hostage. And I'm going to you know put things right. And it turns out that there's no basement in which anyone's kept hostage. There is no basement. And this is just a pizzeria. It's all just fantasy. It was a distorted picture of the world. And the analogy is that what's happened at the Capitol is a lot of people being told this fantasy story about what's going on with no evidence. And they're following him in, in this kind of religious sense. Like We're not concerned with the facts. We're just following the guy who tells us what to do. Um, so this kind of I guess I'm trying to draw an analogy with sort of this particular mindset of embracing a conspiracy theory or embracing some arbitrary claims that it's more reputable in many people's eyes to be concerned with election fraud than with QAnon. Um, but then also this kind of follow the, the leader mentality that we've seen. Uh, I've used in the past the term conspiracy theory. I don't or I try to not use it now. I think a better term is a conspiracy fantasy because theory suggests that there's some real attempt even to process the evidence to form a theory. Like it, it, real theories are, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of evidence to reach the level of, I've got a theory about what is happening. And that's true whether we're talking about a theory of what's happening in politics, a theory of what's happening in chemistry, in human biology or medicine. So it's, so it's a, I think it's, I, I think of it now as a conspiracy fantasy. It's all made up. And I think this is one of the deepest 
philosophical, you can put it perspective or lessons from what is happening in the country right now. It's the connection of, and you can put it in different ways. One of the ways Ayn Rand put it and, and, and stressed that this is a central issue when thinking about the culture and the progression of history. It's the connection of faith and force. Uh, she has an essay, the, and a lengthy essay in the, her book, Philosophy, Who Needs It, that's entitled Faith and Force, the Destroyers of the Modern World. The, and different, I think the, of the arbitrary that we were just talking about, it's a form of faith or it's a different perspective on faith. Faith means I'm embracing uh, some views, viewpoint, dogma. I don't have any evidence for it. I don't have arguments. Indeed, the evidence might point to the opposite. The arguments might be that what I'm maintaining is a contradiction like say, I mean, a historically important example, the Trinity in Christianity, that God's both three and one. Well, in logic, they tell you, uh, and reason tells us that's a contradiction, but faith is above reason, it's above logic, it's above reality, it's our path into another supernatural dimension where contradictions are possible, So, or what seems contradictory isn't. Faith and the arbitrary are it's two ways of looking at the same thing. Another way to put it, and which Ayn Rand often puts it as its mysticism, it's the embrace of viewpoints for non-rational reasons. And ultimately it means based on emotion or better based on whim, that that is what is going on too much today in our culture and as a result in our politics, that it's the embrace of views and viewpoints in the absence or defiance of any evidence or any logic. And the more someone does this, this is a, I think this is a, a view Ayn Rand certainly agrees with, but it was a view that was being arrived at in the enlightenment, this connection, the deep connection between faith and force. And Ayn Rand has new things to say about it, but it's not like she's the first to notice this. In the enlightenment, they were, noticing this phenomenon, and you can, it's a philosophical, psychological phenomenon, but it's very important. It's the more a person doesn't deal with himself, that is so in his own mind, in his own thinking, with reason, logic, arguments, the less he's going to deal with other people by reason, logic, arguments. Like it's, this isn't what has led me to adopt my views. Why should it be what leads other people to adopt their views? If you don't deal with evidence and arguments in your own thinking, you don't view other people as that's how they arrive at conclusions. That's how they should arrive at conclusions. So, and if you're not going to engage in rational argument and persuasion, Ultimately, the only other possibility is I'm going to force people to do what I think is true and to do what I think is right. Like even if they have at some level, some concern with, yeah, I wanna do what's right. The way to do it is not by reason, argument, persuasion. And so how is it? It's to do it by force. And we, so that we see increasingly force as a way to settle um, or determine political cultural issues 
it flows out of that faith, the arbitrary mysticism, is a proper way to reach uh, conclusions or ideas or a viewpoint. I, I want to come back to that because it, it's it's Trump does that. We've we've observed that other people have done it who are on his side. So you can think of them as supporters or allies. And in that sense, we, just to you know, we we started on this thread of responsibility, and you you put it you made the distinction between moral responsibility for the event and legal responsibility. And I'm going to put aside the legal responsibility as well. And I think the, if we think about the moral responsibility, obviously everyone who marched on, on the Capitol building and invaded it and looted it and ransacked it, they're responsible for their own actions. But you step back, you think, yes, Trump has a moral responsibility for some of what happened. But there is a wider cultural climate that I think sort of this halo effect around Trump with people who are enabling him, who are uh, echoing what he says, they're surrogates of his, they're, they're writing in, in magazines and in newspapers uh, as intellectuals, repeating and on television, repeating what he says as if it's true and, and supporting and bolstering what he says and conniving in, in this sort of uh, in. Uh, indulgence in arbitrary claims and, and the defiance of uh, sort of this disregard for the facts and truth. So I think there's a, there's a whole climate of that and that it's amplifying the effect that Trump on his own has. So if you are an outlier, and in some ways he's, he's, he's very far along in this direction of sort of having this perspective, but he's surrounded by people who are supporting him. And there's the, sort of within the culture, there's a sort of disrespect for reason and, and a, not universal, but it, it's a growing phenomenon. Uh, and you see it, and it's, it's certainly not restricted. And I think we definitely have to come back to this. It's certainly not restricted to people who think of themselves as on the right or among con sort of the conservative side of uh, the political landscape. And I think all of those people who are conniving with Trump or, or enabling him or, or uh, making him more respectable than he, he ought to be seen, uh, they are. They also have, I think, moral responsibility here for creating that kind of environment where we're fed this flood of absurdities that are leading us, not all of us, but that are kind of riling people up to believe that they can deal with one another through force. And that's the only way they think they can deal with one another. So I think we, we have a kind of, uh, uh, this is definitely something that I think we have to, we'll be reckoning with way past uh, Trump's uh, uh, term in office, which is this climate in which violence and, and using force in, in a political context is becoming normalized in a way that I don't remember it ever being uh, in my lifetime. Yeah, I think that's one of the scary and frightening aspects of this is the way, and of 2020, but it, I think it goes uh, earlier than 2020, it's the yeah the idea that we the only way in the end to settle political issues and problems is through the use of force, intimidation, threat, violence, and the the I mean if we talk a little bit about the Black Lives Matter the protest the earlier protest in 2020 you see the same element of the uh, what many people put now as wokeness as, as the kind of uh, it's quasi ideological perspective here. 
you seem the same element of an uninterest in the actual facts and of putting in the work to figure out and gather the actual facts, to figure out if you think there's, um, the, there's some element of racism in the police, like what is the evidence for that? And what would it look like to have evidence for that? Is the fact that what happened to George Floyd, that he's black and the officer's not, is that sufficient evidence to have it? And then to say that, oh, this is, oh, everything is like this. And this is, we've had this kind of episode over and over again. Um, and that's at a very concrete level. If, if you take a little more broadly of what is the evidence, like what's the trajectory for racism in America? Is it, has it been diminishing? Has it been stagnant? Has it been growing? And, and thinking of really thinking like, what would be the evidence for that? There was so little um, discussion and even like the possibility to discuss. We already know the conclusions. If you don't share this conclusion, you shouldn't even be talking about this. Like this is not an issue for discussion. We're not trying to persuade you. We're telling you how it is and either get in line or shut up. And that it's, it's the same kind of element of there's a real element of faith mysticism here. There's people who talk about the, however you want to put it, but if we put it as wokeness, as a kind of new religion. And you see that on, um, across our cultural political spectrum, that the viewpoints are held more as dogma and less as we've got arguments for this. And that, the more our culture descends, is like what it means to hold a viewpoint is to hold a certain dogma or other. The more we're back to the pre-enlightenment age, where it's like you got Protestant and Catholics, and we've each got our dogma, and we hate each other, and you can't reason this out. So the only way you can do solve anything is through who's got the bigger guns. On this issue of the the sort of what you described as the woke mentality, uh, I definitely see that with what happened in connection with the riots about so following uh, the killing of George Floyd. I, I mean, I think the the mentality, and sometimes it doesn't lead to violence immediately, but there's a, the same kind of uh, in, indulgence in the arbitrary or taking things on faith or you want it to be true so it's true and that's what we're going to do and the the example that came to mind for me was you might, i forget the name of the school but there was a, a group of students in washington dc outside i think it was the, the jefferson memorial and there was a picture of a a, a white high school kid wearing a, a red hat i think it might have been a, a maga hat and then he faced off with a native american and this picture, the boy is smirking or something, and it was taken as obvious evidence that the boy was taunting this Native American. And here, you know, this is a white kid taunting uh, an Aboriginal. And the, there was this instant wildfire reaction that the obviously the right view here was, yeah, this is one more case in which, uh, you know, this white kid is lording it over someone who is an oppressed minority. And the reality, and people went all over this kid and, and um, you know, they're abusing him online and all sorts of things, it's really harrowing, I imagine, for him. And then some actually responsible journalists went around and said, well, what actually happened here? And then they uncover some video and then you find out that this snapshot and even some of the clips from the videos that were released, they don't even tell the beginning of the story. And it was actually the opposite way around and that the facts were completely different from what people took it. 
but it just became an instant orthodox view that you have to be against this white kid and, and for the Native American. And it turns out that it was very hard to figure out what was going on. It was certainly not what people thought it was instantly. But then th this is part of what's alarming to me was there was no sense of contrition. Oh, how could we have made this mistake? Or yeah, well, I guess we were just overreacting or knee jerk, but it was not that. It was just, we know what the right view is and we don't need evidence. We, we know that the narrative of white people oppressing uh, minorities is true. And this was one and more example of it. And let's, let's beat the drums for it. So that kind of uh, cavalier attitude to the facts and then a, which I think reveals a disregard for any concern with the truth is what we want this to be true. We, we believe this narrative and we're just going to find more concretes and evidence, pseudo evidence for it. And that to me, and you see it, it's, that was a fairly benign case because no one got hurt. It was just sort of this flap. But it, now imagine if it's about something as significant as what you raised, which is the, the is there, you know, and uh, significant evidence for, police brutality against blacks on a scale that you would think you should really care about that you should look at the evidence you kind of it's it's worse than irresponsible it's it's really uh destructive and it it this is part of what i think is lit so many of the fuses we saw last summer with the riots and the people protesting and, and then getting out of hand and then there was sort of much more than that but uh to me that it's whether, however it's manifested, it's a certain way of looking at the world that's really destructive. It's part of what it means to say that we're descending into tribalism and it's very worrisome, it's depressing, but, and it is dangerous. Last week, you and I, we were talking on the, on the podcast about the Charlie Hebdo attacks and some of the context for thinking of the attacks, one of which, one crucial element of which was the Danish cartoon crisis. And again, we both were working at ARI, writing and speaking about that issue. We had events where we displayed the cartoons and so on. The one aspect of that crisis was, the, I think you talked about it last week in the podcast, about how Imams throughout the Middle East, or, or some were from Europe and went back to the Middle East, I think, to stir up the crowd about that this is what ha the, this Danish newspaper has done, and they've blasphemed against Muhammad and so on. They don't show the cartoons. The crowd that is being incited to take, I mean, for some of them, incited all the way that they're going to take up arms and try to assassinate these cartoonists and these journalists. They have, they've not seen the cartoons, they don't know what happened, but it's enough that someone is telling them that our tribe has been disrespected, that tribe is evil, and we need to do something, and to do something here means we need to um, eliminate them in, by force. And I remember thinking, and I, I wonder if you had the same reaction, that it's like, this is the primitive state of too much of the culture in the Middle East, or at least parts of the Middle East. And thank God we don't live in a country like that, that Denmark is not like that, the US is not like that, Western countries are not like that. And the descent into tribalism is, we're getting more like that, that a whole 
crowds, so, and here we put it as whole tribes or gangs, can be riled up with no evidence, no evidence even being offered. They don't think really they have any evidence. We're just told to hate and to attack other people, the other groups or tribes. And yeah, we'll go along with that. I think one of the, the things that I've taken from this episode, um, I've written before about Trump, the meaning of his election when right after he was elected, I brought up something that many people have brought up since about him talking uh, in the campaign about how he could uh, walk down Fifth Avenue in New York and shoot someone and he wouldn't lose support, that his supporters wouldn't abandon him. And he said, that's incredible. And he said it in a positive way like this is incredible not this is incredibly disturbing it's this is incredibly great that that's the kind of support i have it should be disturbing and sort of the corollary of it is i could tell some of my supporters to walk down fifth avenue and shoot people and they would do it <clears throat> and that's part of what that we have a rising authoritarianism it's you have groups and gangs who will go around using force without being offered any real reason or evidence of why, why force is, uh, it's a last resort and we have to use it. And we're, we're descending into that kind of atmosphere, which is both depressing and enormously dangerous. I actually was rereading the article that you mentioned about Trump from 2016. And what struck me is that, I mean, a couple of things. Uh, one is it's, it's well worth revisiting in light of what happened last week at the Capitol, because I think it does get at some of what is the phenomenon, not so much Trump himself, but the, the following that he's energized and the people that he's able to activate, as we've seen uh, last week. Part of what uh, took me, restruck me even more than the first time I read it is that the warning that you raised was authoritarianism is on both sides. And you mentioned that the followers of Bernie Sanders had some of this kind of perspective that they were just following him. There was no real evidence for what he was saying. There's not sort of a commitment to the truth. It's, it's this really uh, disturbing kind of tribal loyalty to the person, not, uh, not no, in some ways, uh, Sanders is more ideological, uh, but there is, but I don't think that is really the core of what explains so much of the appeal that people had uh, for, that they found in him. Uh, so there's that kind of it's it's definitely sort of broad spectrum. You see it on different sides of the political landscape, uh, and I think one other thing I want to say about that article is, and, and a lot of what we've been talking about here is because there's a way in which, to the extent people have some affinity for Trump, or they voted for him, even if they held their nose or if they did it willingly and eagerly. The conversation we're having is not about the people who voted for Trump as a whole or as a group. We're, we're really talking about the phenomenon of what accounts or part of what accounts for the appeal and loyalty that he engenders and the way in which he's able to manipulate that or to use it to certain effects uh, and sort of the, the, the philosophical and psychological dynamics behind that. 
because I think it's 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 become it, it. I think this is another symptom of the tribalism. It's difficult to talk about Trump without instantly criticizing him, without instantly being thought of, oh, you must be on the left, and and it's as if or you're 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 betraying something. Uh, that's good and true and you know the sort of the blaspheming mentality is like if you say something against my leader you must you must be evil and wrong and it, it's sort of this imperviousness to examining critically what are the facts what is the evidence what conclusions might you draw from that uh, I mean you another way to put it is just being objective about the person and the movement that he's created so I, I just want to put that out there that the, what we're trying to do is not go after people for how they voted or, or, or the reason for it, because there are lots of reasons. And uh, and I know people I respect who voted for Trump. And this is not about that. That's a separate issue that I want to put aside. It's it's the wider cultural phenomenon that what enabled him to become so popular in 2016 so that he won and still such that he's able to, to rile up a crowd to, to carry out what I don't think we've ever seen in American history. People storming the Capitol building to overturn the election results. Uh, so to me, those are important things to keep in mind and just to be objective about what we're trying to, to kind of capture here and conceptualize. Yes. And I, I reread the article as well prior to this, and I think it's clear that it's not addressing everybody who voted for Trump. It's dress, addressing it really is focused on the nature of the campaign that he ran and the fact that he gained some ardent support as a result of this. But it's, it makes the same point about Bernie Sanders, that it's, um, it's not, I wouldn't um, think that everyone who voted Democrat or something in the Hillary Trump election is there, there's something they'd all doing it for the same reasons, but you could see particularly for Bernie Sanders, he has a, a, an element of fanatical support. And that if you don't want to look at that phenomenon and think about it and think that on the side of the Republicans, Trump has that when they talk about his like, core base, there's a type of fanaticism there that I think of as new in American politics, certainly on the scale that it now seems to exist. I think one of the enduring images of the Capitol riots should be that some of the, uh, sorry, I put it as riots, but the capitalist attack and what the terrorists were doing, um, that the replacement of the US flag with a Trump flag, I think one should see that in the same vein as if you had Islamist terrorists taking down the US flag and putting up their flag. The, and, it, and it's significant, it's not a Republican flag. It's not at all about even the semblance of ideas. It's this leader. Um, and that's what authoritarianism looks like. It's this person will be our savior and we're fighting for our savior and that there's a fanaticism there. One should see it as akin to religion because religion I think is essentially that, particularly when it starts off. Um, it's this, this deification of a person. It often works like that. That's what is on the rise, unfortunately, I think, in the American culture and American politics. And it's for 
identifiable philosophical reasons that this is on the rise. Yeah, I, I want to build on that because to me, the the one of the lessons of the the storming of the capital is that for as much as there were people who had defensible reasons or, or good reasons or, or sort of everything in between for going in the direction of Trump and supporting him, there is, so as you put it, the base or the core, there is what I think is aptly called a cult of Trump, a cult of personality. And this is, I think, part of what accounts for the, you know, this, what I mean to say is it really integrates with the idea of being looking for an authoritarian figure in your life and, and finding it and then sort of, well, tell me what to do now. And, oh, you've had an outrage, so let me go and fix it. And, and in, in effect, putting your life on the line, because I think if you think, this is a point that really didn't sink in for me until a few days ago and I was listening to different commentary and, and thinking about this issue and reading different analysis. If you put yourself in the position of going with this crowd to the Capitol building, and you've seen what happened in 2020 with the, the police reactions to various protests and riots and so forth, and the history of how police in different parts of the country at different times in history have reacted to crowds. It's not a, a, a happy story. I mean, there are many cases of, of just people losing their lives at protests who didn't really think that was gonna happen because police are not that well-trained in how to handle riots and there's all sorts of things that can happen. So literally you're putting your life on the line by doing something like this. And yet that is what so many of those people who stormed the Capitol were doing. And, and it was, it, they're doing it for their leader. They're, they're doing, or many of them at least, were doing this because they were told to do it. And yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what my tribe expects of me. This is what my leader expects of me. And that is a deeply sort of anti-intellectual, anti-thinking mentality. It's, it's an obedience mentality. And it goes along with the fact that Trump was, one of the startling things about him is just how empty of content and ideas he is. And this, a lot of it's contradictory. And so you can't really say, oh yeah, they were going in there because they like Trump's policy on energy, or they, they like the fact that he's opening up uh, patches of, uh, of territory for drilling and uh, he's favorable to uh, Israel, or he's favorable to, you know, he wants to push back on NATO. Whatever you think of some of Trump's successes or wins politically, I don't think those are what were animating the people who walked in and tried to storm the building and, and overturn the election. I think what animated them more, or many of them at least, is he told us to do this and we have to rectify things. That this is what it means to be a good person. So it's this sort of mindset of, yeah, we have to go fix this. The election was stolen. We have to stop it. And why and who and what is the evidence for this and what is the value of what you're doing and do you know that you're risking your life and does it matter to you none i don't think those questions are really central to the person uh, to many of the people acting in that case and that to me is sort of it, it, that is sort of the core of this mindset of this phenomenon this mentality and i, I think you put it earlier as it's it's this you can characterize it as a faith-based or sort of engaging in the arbitrary or a mystical view. It's not about the facts and logic. It's about, I, I feel this is the right thing to do. I was told to do it and I'm being, I'm following the leader in this case. Uh, to me, that's not, that's the farthest thing I can imagine from what it truly means to be an American. 
which is don't tell me what to do. I'll figure it out and I'll make my own way in the world and I'll decide if you're right and I'll decide if you're wrong. Not tell me what to do and then I'll put my life on the line for you. Yes. And on, on the issue, we, we've touched on this, I think, in a couple different ways, but maybe a, a third or another way would, is useful, that of not painting everything with the same brush. So I don't think that it, I haven't got, um, I don't know if you've seen, I haven't seen any real reporting like, that I, I consider like real reporting about the size of the crowd. Um, and then the amount of people who marched from the, the place where the speeches were being held towards the Capitol. It was large. I think that you could say, uh, at least I can say based on what I've seen. And it's not all the people who stormed the Capitol. And I've seen interviews with people who said, so some didn't know what was going on for a while of people who said when they learned or saw that this is what was happening left the protest. And I, I think it's important to get, like it's not everybody who was at this rally. Some were there for peaceful, re it's a protest. Whether it's for good reasons they're there is a different, I think they've been fed a whole series, as many people say, of misinformation about it's stolen. It's a, but they're there and they're peaceful and they're, they are, um, react very negatively when they see the the violence and the attacks going on mm -hmm. there's people who stay there they don't participate in it but they stay and cheer it a little bit egg it on that you have a certain re significant responsibility you're not um uh engaged in the actual attacks but you're supporting it in a certain kind of way the, it, that kind of distinction, I think, should be made, but it should be made on on for all these kinds of things. So in the Black Lives Matter protest, it's not true that everybody there was just looking for an opportunity to riot or worse, to terrorize the police and try to overturn political decisions. There, but there was a real element of that in the whole of, of the phenomenon of the protest. And you have to think and you have to be, if you're going to protest, you have to think like, am I getting involved in this? Am I giving cover to this? Am I in some way egging this on? Or am I really trying to be involved in something that is peaceful and we're gonna take active steps to try to prevent it from um, disintegrating into something not peaceful, let alone of giving cover to people who have uh, uh, kind of terrorist motivation and plans. And you have to think about that if you're if you're involved in these kinds of protests. But you also have to make it to, when you're dealing with tens of thousands of people, they don't all have the same motivation, the same reasons, the same view for being there, the same viewpoints. And you have to make that distinction. But you have to make it um, for all of these things, not cherry pick. Because there was a lot of cherry picking about no, the the Trump people they don't really support this, and it was just a few Antifa who are leading this. And I've seen this, I've seen a little bit of evidence that so you could raise it as a possibility that there were some Antifa in the crowd. The idea that, that they were all, and that, I mean, all the, the people who are being photographed and so on have a whole history of being pro-Trump. So, so the idea that that was everybody um, is not true, but you have to, 
if you're trying to look at these, you have to actually look at what the evidence is and not paint everything because it's the wrong tribe. So I'm going to paint it all with one brush. And it, there's too much of that as well. And it's one shouldn't do that. But nor should one, you, so you can demonize the other group, paint them with one brush, and you can whitewash your group and paint it all with one brush. And both are really, really wrong. Yeah, the, the kind of um, tribal thinking about, well, our group is fine. There, we might have a few bad apples, but they're all uniform. I, I think that is, you know, I, I've read a lot about and studied the Middle East and the politics there. And that is just to a T, the mentality of a lot of people, a lot of leaders and how they sort of uh, run their countries and try to engineer support from their followers. And it's it's you find a scapegoat or you find an enemy and you point to it and they're uniformly bad. There's nobody good on that other side. And our people were, we're the right ones. And the, the, one of the, just to go back to Trump, one of the factors sort of driving this or reinforcing this kind of perspective is Trump. I don't think there's, I, I can't think of a, a, a case where Trump has said, yeah, there's some good people that, um, have arguments against me and yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I can answer them or I disagree with them or something like that. But yeah, th there's a range of views uh, across the other side. It's no, they're all one big thing. They're allied with the media. They're allied with, the, uh, you know, this is one block that we're facing and we're sort of the victims here. So that's the other side of it. There's the aggressors on the outside that we have to keep out and we're the victims. And again, the analogy goes as well with the kind of mentality you see with dictators and theocrats and, and, and authoritarian leaders, particularly in the Middle East, which is, yeah, they're our, our hated enemy across the border, they're all bad. And we're the ones who are constantly victimized. We're just defending ourselves. We're just trying to right wrongs. That kind of dynamic is, one, it's almost always detached from the facts. And two, it is it re, it relies and it reinforces that kind of tribal view of there's our group and we're good and there's the outside group and they're all bad and there's no nuance there's no detail there's no uh, questions about what is what is the do they have any legitimate criticism that we have to consider none of that even enters the picture and um, so in in some ways this reminds me of something that happened around the time Trump took power and I think it's been validated over and over, which is there was a kind of reaction to how did this happen? This is very surprising. And I think a lot of time was spent and understandably trying to puzzle out how did, what explains this uh, success of Trump because he wasn't in politics. He didn't have the kind of track that people typically have. And this is part of what your essay is trying to answer is what explains the kind of campaign he ran and how it was successful. But there were people who were saying, look, yeah, this is not a new kind of model. This is, you see this in other countries, you particularly see it in um, in Africa and the Middle East. This is how people rise to power. This is the some of, some of the things they say. And they, you could actually find um, leaders with the same kind of attitude to facts and the same kind of myth-making and, and arbitrary claims. So there, it's a kind of established, I don't wanna say it's a model or anything as sophisticated as that, but it's a pattern that you can detect. Uh, and it's, and it's really dangerous. And when you see the rulers in other countries that came to power this way and held power this way and manipulated people and, and drove them to certain actions in this way, this is part of what it looks like to have an authoritarian regime and a dictatorial mindset. 
doesn't mean that Trump is himself a dictator or, or that he would, I think there's certainly a desire on his part to exert that kind of power. And he's made statements that, but it's, he's in that camp. I mean, he's definitely got the, the elements of what that kind of uh, leadership approach requires and, and, and counts on. So when we were talking about this the other day that um, it's important to have a wider conception of what counts as dictatorial and authoritarian than what most people have. Yes, and not to have a um, frozen abstraction. One, of, one term that Ayn Rand coined is you're, you have one or two examples of the phenomenon and you're taking those examples as this exhausts the phenomenon. So when you talk about it as there's a dictatorial element on the rise in America, I think uh, often that's translated into you're saying that Trump or Obama is Hitler or Stalin. And the, I don't think that's what it means when we're talking about a dictator. They might be the examples that most readily come to mind, but the dictatorship and tyranny is a far wider phenomenon. And it's often less ideological. So with Hitler and the Nazis, there's the whole Nazi ideology. With Stalin and before Lenin and Marx, there's a whole ideology behind the dictatorship. And it's part of what makes it totalitarian. They have a whole viewpoint of, we're going to wield total power over people's lives. But the more normal dictatorships tyranny and authoritarian regimes is enormous power and in in a in a definite way unlimited power wielded by a tyrant or a dictator but not so much for an ideological cause or program and it's often not total power. People are allowed or permitted a little bit of freedom, which can be snatched away at any time. And when you think of dictatorships, you need to think of that whole range of dictatorships that exist in the Middle East um, and that have existed in the Middle East, in Africa, in South America, where it's less ideological, um, it, but it's figures holding in uh, total power, but it's not being wielded as we've got this grand cause that we're trying to achieve, whether it's Nazism, communism, uh, or something like that. Uh, there's religious versions of this, and Islam today in Iran is a religious version of a more totalitarian. And Trump and the atmosphere, I think, of what is happening is more aligned along that line. It's a kind of petty dictatorship. You put it a cult of personality. It's, um, you're going to have to function by permission. I think the one of the worst things in Trump's speech of January 6th was his attitude towards the Supreme Court. And I think this is uh, very much the mentality of an authoritarian dictatorship. Uh, the, so he, and he, I mean, he says it explicitly in the, in the talk that, look, I fought to get 
my judges into the Supreme Court. And I had senators telling me, and I, I, he doesn't mention Kavanaugh by name, but I assume it's Kavanaugh, that you should drop Kavanaugh when the allegations came out. And he said, no, I'm going to fight for Kavanaugh. And the expectation, and he's explicit on this, the expectation is then Kavanaugh is going to vote for whatever I want. So it, the Supreme Court is going to be a rubber stamp to what I want. And I can't really understand why it's not like that. Um, he, he says something similar, again, very revealing about the media. So it's the media is demonized as it's fake news. They're out to get all of us to destroy our country. They're participants in the greatest election fraud in the history of the world and history of governments. And then he says, you know, they're they're close to, I mean, he doesn't say close, actually. They're genius in the way they operate. And to tell you the truth, he says, I do the same if I were in their position. And I think that's true. And it's very revealing that his, his whole view of the world is, look, I lie, cheat, and steal. I defraud people and so on. And everybody acts like this, like the media is doing that. And to tell you the truth, I would do exactly the same of what the media do if I held power. And that's the kind of dictator mentality that's not, it's not some grand ideological cause, but it's what dictatorships have looked like throughout history and throughout the 20th century. Um, and it, it's frightening that there's even a whiff of that today in American politics. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind in that vein is the, uh, the theme that you hear a lot from Trump and a lot of his followers and a lot of his supporters and, and surrogates is they're victims and constantly persecuted. And in, you hear this is, a, uh, you know, before Trump was removed from Twitter and Facebook and so on, like if you think a couple of years ago, the social media was out to get him, there was blacklisting. And the, I don't think the evidence on that is, is anywhere near conclusive if there is uh, something going on. But it was, we're the ones who are being persecuted in every direction. We therefore need a savior. We need a, a show of strength. So this duality of we're persecuted and we need strength. We need to fight back. And I think part of the appeal for some people of Trump is that he does fight back. Uh, so this, this kind of going back and forth between we're the victimized ones, we have to show strength. It, it's really telling because it's, I mean, you hear, if you just step outside the US context and you listen to other leaders who are authoritarian, there's no question about that. You have to take some center of the page examples. That, that is constant uh, refrain you hear from them, which is we're beset by enemies within, you know, there's, there's opposition within, we have to tamp them down. And then there's opposition without, and we have to tamp them down. They're victimizing us. We're just standing up for ourselves and we need to have a show of strength. Otherwise no one will respect us. So that whole idea of, um, imagining themselves in a position of weakness, which is just, it's, it's laughable when you think that Trump, I think this has been said many times, but Trump, I don't think would have succeeded politically at all or nearly as much as he did without Twitter. And yet he was constantly railing on Twitter uh, for, for years while he was president. And you see the same thing with social media uh, of other kinds where, that enable his supporters to connect. And yet they're constantly feeling that this is the enemy um, so it's really disturbing to see that kind of uh, that theme come up and become 
part of the way people engage with uh, politics in this country. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, this idea of victimhood is, is it's often said that it's the left that is playing uh, for the victims, like they're looking for victims, they're looking for the downtrodden, and they're, they're, they see themselves as supporting uh, the downtrodden. And I don't mean the left in some coherent sense, but just people who are not on the right and see themselves as either progressive or woke or however they describe it. And I think that is a real phenomenon. I think in some cases it is really exaggerated. In some cases it's worse than that. But the, so I, the, the whole idea of there are victims and there are uh, uh, persecutors is, it, it's not that there aren't such phenomena in, in our society. There are problems, but it's the way the political tribes have cast themselves in this drama is I think really uh, telling of how they think of the world rather than the facts of what the world actually is. And you've made this point in regard to the way uh, Islam and the Islamist cause works that I think is important that the people would see that like, this is a real dynamic. So they simultaneously say, Islam is the path to greatness, to strength. Um, it's the only real or true religion. And, and but then there's the question is, so why don't we wield power? Why and then you have to paint it as you have or, well, we're profound victims of Western culture, of imperial governments. And you really so you have to play the victim and you have to scapegoat. Like if only we got rid of this, these people who are for some reason not strong but able to dramatically oppress us. Um, we would be okay. So we're we're strong, but we're in a position of incredible weakness, and we have to eliminate um, these people that we've scapegoated, and that somehow is going to be the solution of returning us to greatness. And I mean, just as if you think part of Trump's rhetoric, make America great again. If you ask like what was great about America in the past, and so there's no answer to that. It's just there's this kind of mysticism mythology of some greatness that we've lost. We're now profound victims. There's all kinds of scapegoats. I mean, for Trump, it's immigrants and so on, elites on the coast and so on. They're the ones who are uh, killing us. You saw the same in Nazi Germany, like German, the Aryan races, this is the greatest race. The, the, but why, so why are we fledgling nation? Why do we lose World War One and so on? It's the Jews and a whole bunch of other things that you scapegoat. And you see that scapegoating with Trump and the movement around him. And it's to see the play the victim. It's not, okay, we found some irregularities or so on in the election. It's the most corrupt election in the history of mankind. So it's like, we're the greatest victims that have ever existed on the planet from a kind of political government perspective. And it's, that that's part of the essence of what he is doing. It's to playing the victim. There was in, in the chat, and we have a lot of questions that we should start getting to, but there was some comment about the snowflakes on the left. If you don't think that a real attraction of the Trump is snowflakes, it, that, that it's this, that we're profound victims and look at us and it's, it's trumpeting their victimhood, um, I don't think you're really seeing the phenomenon. Uh, I make this point often, the two crowds that I've been in front of where I think that it's the most irrational 
uh, in their behavior. They won't listen. They disrupt the talk. They and it, part of the disruption is we're great victims, and we're not going to take this oppression anymore. Like that's how they tell it to themselves and couch it. It's it's in front of college students, particularly on the issue of Islam, and you've been in front of crowds like that, and Trump supporters. Those I've talked in front of both. They've both disrupted talks um, in a really irrational way, and they're both playing the victim. So as you said, we have a lot of questions. I, I'm eager to get to those. I, I want to raise a couple of quick points that I thought are important about the attack itself. Uh, and as you said, there's still a lot of reporting being done. Not all of it's good or even that helpful, but it, I think more and more is coming to light. One thing I you know, I was talking about my reaction when we started the conversation. Uh, I want to say something about the police because they're now being put, there's fingers being pointed about, was this deliberate? Was it understaffed? What was happening with their police who were uh, sort of going along with the protesters? Because you see some taking selfies. Uh, were they supportive because they were Trump uh, loyalists in some way? And my thought here is, I'm, I was appalled at how easy it was for the the people coming in to get into the to the, the 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 building that was really alarming but i think it's it's we don't have enough evidence yet to stop blaming the the police uh and i think there's so many things going on it's hard to piece together what was actually happening in every given point of entry where people were storming in i mean it's it's a, it, it's not out of the question that there are police officers who were uh not doing their job or or thinking that they're loyal to the crowd. I don't think that, I don't think there's evidence to think that's the predominant explanation. I think in fact, it's just, it's very hard to be a police officer in a situation like this. This is not, I think, what any of them thought was going to happen that morning when they got out of bed and put on their uniform. And certainly the training that I think police officers are given is to see if they can de-escalate. And there's some videos of them. You can see there's, there's one of them, he's, he's being swarmed by a group of people and he's thinking, what should I do? And this, the video is just playing and he, he picks up a truncheon and he thinks, well, should I use this? And or he puts it down and he realizes, no, I don't want to aggravate the situation. He backs away, keeps back away, and he runs up the stairs. And you can think there's ways in which maybe that is the right thing for him to be doing in that situation, just so that nobody loses their life in, a, in this dynamic where he, if he pulls out his gun and he's the first police officer to kill someone on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol, first of all, that would, I mean, it would be a catastrophic problem. And, and I don't know what his career would look like uh, after that, even if it's an accident. But then just to think about the the kind of stress that the police are faced, they're un, the, clearly understaffed in the sense that there are more people coming in than police necessary to keep them out. So I think the, the, at this point, I don't think there's enough to say uh, that to blame the police. I think I think we'll find out more as time goes on, but I, I'm very wary of doing that at this point. Uh, and I think the other thing I, I had to say about the, the, the attack itself is part of what I found really horrifying and aggravating was the characterization of these, as you put it, terrorists, I think it's an apt term, characterizing them as patriots for the reason that I don't think that they're anywhere near what it means to be a patriot, which is to have some conception of what's valuable, objectively valuable about this country, and to, to be able to articulate it in some form that's in the cogent, 
And then to understand what that means and how their actions in that context was completely contrary to what it means to support and value the ideals of this country. And in fact, what you do see that and certainly, again, I, to amplify your point from earlier, the point is not that we know of every single one of them who stormed the building, this is what their view is, but there's evidence that some of them, and, and it seems like a sizable number of them are conspiracists. Some of them, there's that iconic and horrifying picture of a man carrying a Confederate flag into the US Capitol building, which I mean, that is stomach turning. That is the flag of a treasonous uh, group of states that tried to tear this country apart in the name of upholding slavery. And that is what this person is bringing into the halls of government. And then there are people wearing neo-Nazi t-shirts uh, and, and sort of uh, reveling in the fact of the great, one of the greatest destructions of human life we've, we've witnessed on the face uh, in, in any kind of memory. Uh, th those are some of the people who walked into the building. And then just generally the people who went along with this and the people who were there who were not ideological or Confederate loving or neo-Nazis, the people who were there who were just there to tear it up kind of burn things down mentality, that is a, that it speaks of a nihilism, not any kind of valuing of what's good about America. And I, 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 that's part of what I, as I got more into understanding what happened there, to me, it is appalling to think of what these people did as in any way supportive of what's good about America. In fact, I think it contradicts it in sort of the fundamental sense. And then when you see what they, some of them actually believe, it, it's just, it's outlandish to have that view. If you live in a free or semi-free country and you attack the government institutions that make that freedom or semi-freedom possible, the idea that you're a patriot is uh, the opposite of the truth. You're someone who is engaged in destruction of an enormous value, which is a proper or semi proper functioning of a government. That's a tremendous achievement. And if you're attacking that, that is uh, destruction on a scale that is really, really bad. I want to say one other thing about the police, which is, yes, I, I, so I certainly agree that there's one should not blame them. There's issues about were they prepared and didn't execute? And then why did the execution fail uh, of the plan that they were prepared and had a plan and it wasn't executed well? Or is it that they were not prepared? And then there'll be questions about, well, why weren't they prepared? There seemed to be enough reason to think something like this could happen given the discussion online and the rhetoric about uh, and, and the claims about like, this is massive fraud, we've been defrauded of the election, it's been stolen, to think that this would happen. So there has to be real investigation and, um, and sort of, if you put it in a business kind of way, an after action review of what exactly happened and why. But to, to say that part of what, to go back to something we started with about 9-11, to say that this isn't on the scale of 9-11 that in the sense that this succeeded, that's in significant part and due to the police um, at, uh, and, and their actions. So there's um, tragically loss of life here, but the loss of life, if you put aside the protesters is police 
uh, men. And, and you see some of the video of them being attacked. One of the police killed was the, the what said is that it was a fire extinguisher. That he was hit over the head with a fire extinguisher. I mean, police died. And the idea that you're going to blame them for this. And what didn't happen is they didn't get to the elected representatives and their staff. They were shielded. And then Congress and the Senate were able, the House and the Senate were able to meet um, fairly quickly afterwards. So if anything, and as you put it, they were really outnumbered, they succeeded. And we didn't have the kind of destruction and death that was certainly possible. And that there's certainly evidence to think of, of, of watching people, um, um, of some of them who were, uh, who had, had managed to get into the Capitol of what they're carrying and, and shouting and, and chanting things like we're going to hang Mike Pence and so on. The, I think of it as, it's, if anything, you should think of it as the police succeeded in, in a very difficult situation. And unfortunately, some police lost their life. And it's, it's that this is part of why I think it's important to classify it as terrorism. Those people who killed the police and the, the, all the people who bear responsibility for that should be treated like terrorists. I, I think maybe let's bring in some of the questions. I have a few more thoughts I wanted to share, but let's see if the questions uh, sort of overlap with them and then we can uh, bring that in. So a lot of questions. Thanks to all of you watching and uh, spending your, your day with us and getting your thoughts on the reactions and what's going on. So let's start with some of the questions having to do with the comparison or the putting together what happened at the Capitol with what happened in 2020 with various protests uh, led by Black Lives Matter uh, people. So I think we've said that, that it's not that you have to pick one and that because the other side is doing it, therefore it's okay for your side to do it. I think that's not the right way to think of it. And that it's wrong to cause destruction of property and destruction of lives. And there's a lot of things to say about the right to protest as people understand it. We've done podcasts on that, which people should uh, look up. I encourage you to do that. But let's dig into one of these questions here on this. Um, this one, uh, I think, is worth sort of unpacking a bit. So does the acceptance of participants' actions over the summer at the BLM protests, I take it, have application here. And I think this, this goes to the issue of what I would think of as, I think the answer is yes. I think there is something going on here, which is this phenomenon we've discussed of normalizing the use of force, physical force and violence in particular, as a way of solving or attempting to solve political disagreements. And I think that there's a deep philosophic explanation for why it's become prevalent in our society. And I think it's, it's, it definitely feeds on itself because the people saying, well, how is this worse than what happened in the summer? We're actually trying to do something right. They were just tearing things down. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Yes, so the, the part of what was depressing about the, the riots um, and destruction, but as I say, I think some of it should be put as it's terrorist attacks against the police and the structures of government in different cities in the US and certainly Portland and Seattle are two big examples of that. I mean, you, you have a, a whole zone in Seattle where the police have been driven out, the police precinct is empty. So that is, that's not just a riot. That is a terrorist act 
against government and trying to change the politics here in a city um, through the use of force and the use of violence. And there was not anywhere close to sufficient uh, denunciation of this and a proper categorization of it as this is terrorism. It's an attempt to enact your political causes through the use of force. But I think the, um, so that, I think that's true, it's important, and I wouldn't put it under, it's, well, it's hypocrites or it's hypocrisy. It's, there was a real sanctioning of the use of force for political ends. And if you now say, well, okay, you guys did it, so I, we're doing it. So that's a sanctioning of the use of force for political ends. And it's your, the conceptualization is not, well, you're a hypocrite, so we can be, you know, you're both trying to use force for political ends and to invoke fear and terror. But that political issues are really settled by force. That's part of the Trump campaign. And that, and I think the preceding 2016, it's part of the reason to think that a central element of the campaign is this authoritarian dictatorial element to it. So if you think of, um, take, it's the first time I've seen it in American politics. And it, if it doesn't remind you of countries in Africa and South America, so, um, then I think you just don't know enough about these kinds of countries. At Trump's rallies and Trump encouraging this, the chance of lock her up, lock her up, not we're gonna defeat a political opponent in an election and so on. It's the, my opponent is a criminal who we have to lock up. Um, and it's, they're gonna try to, I mean, part of the atmosphere is they're gonna try to do the same to us. They're gonna use force against us. We have to use force against them. And it's a more than one rally. This, I mean, this was a part of the campaign, this kind of chant, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. That is, if you don't think, uh, are we in a second or third world country? Are we really in the United States where we're having political rallies of someone who's being taken seriously as, as, a, as a viable candidate for the presidency and it's we're gonna lock up our political opponents or when he encourages and invites, outright invites the uh, Russia to continue attacking the US, it's, yeah, we got to use force to get our political ends. Like we got to hack the DNC and get stuff out so that we can win. And it's again, it's the use of force to for political ends. And then when he's president, I, I, I this may be the lowest thing I've ever seen a president do, which is his embrace of uh, one of the things he calls him Chairman Kim. So the dictator and mass murderer in North Korea. And embrace here doesn't mean okay, I'll sit down and negotiate. It's, we fell in love. And it's, he's explicit about that. We fell in love. And it's a wonderful thing. And people are going to criticize me, that I've, but it's a wonderful thing that we fell in love. If that is not that he loves someone who maintains political power through terror, if that is not a sanctioning of, yeah, it's legitimate to use force for political ends, like what would be sanctioning that? So the idea that it's only, if only Black Lives Matter and the protest of 2020 didn't happen, 
that there wasn't this kind of atmosphere in the Trump uh, campaign and administration that forces a legitimate tool to achieve political ends. I think you're not really looking at what the, the campaign and administration, the whole atmosphere around it was like. Alan, you're reminding me of, of Trump's policy toward North Korea. It was, you said he, this whole idea of he, they fell in love. It was also, I think he said, what he had, one of the things he admired about Kim is that when Kim said something, people stood up. And that, and why can't we have that here? Uh, and, and there's a similar kind of thing with his adm admiration for Vladimir Putin, who, who is a sort of fascist autocratic thug, where people respect him because of the force that he uses and intimidation he uses. So there's something really uh, revealing there. Um, one other thing, one other aspect here from, there's a lot of questions on this kind of uh, parallel. Um, do you, we've said a bit about the countering the view that there's some legitimacy behind the uh, storming of the Capitol, but do you think that one, so the protests at the Capitol, not the protests, the, the attack and the terrorism at the Capitol was in some way worse or better than, so less bad than the, some of the protests that happened in the summer uh, animated by Black Lives Matter? Because in that case, as the questioner asked, personal property was damaged and innocent people uh, were harmed. There's a difference, I think, in terms of the, the scale of it. Uh, I don't know what you think, Alon, but to me, there's a difference between um, and take what I put as a, I think of it as it's it's terrorist action, the attacks on police and police station and trying to drive them out. And as I say, I mean two central episodes of this are in Seattle and continuing. I think in Portland, that's really really bad. It's at a further scale, but it's not to diminish the evil of what is involved in attacking the police in cities. But it's it's at a it's a bigger scale when it's in terms of the federal government and to try to terrorize the House and or Senate um, to change their vote to change who the president is the the that's a, on a larger scale in the same way one looks at terrorist attacks that other terrorist attacks there's difference in scale if you just take the Islamic terrorist attacks. There's a difference in scale between what happened on 9-11 and um, what happened, say, in Garland, Texas, where the, the, they didn't succeed. I think this was in 2015 when they were going after a cartoonist in Garland, Texas, and the police killed two of the attackers. There, I mean, we're at a level of such evil that it's, the most important thing to say is both are evil. But then it's there's a difference in scale, I think, when it's an attack on the Capitol and an attempt to intimidate and terrorize the elected representatives to change a fundamental political decision. Uh, let's let's move to some other topics. Um, we'll see if we can get to more of the questions that have come in already. Uh, so let's turn to some questions about the motives or the mentality of the, the terrorists who went to the Capitol. Um, 
So do you think that, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit, maybe we can, there's points to amplify. Um, do you think that part of what was going on is an attempt to undermine the rule of law? Does this mean they accept that only those laws they like? Um, I mean, my, my thought on that is absolutely it's an attempt to defy the rule of law. The rule of law means we have an objective process that's known and, and publicly observable for how uh, power is transferred and there's mechanisms and it's, it's well established. And the fact that you don't like it or you don't like the outcome is it's a it's a it's your problem. <laughs> you, you have to find peaceful ways through the, the legal system to uh, address that. And I don't think so. But that's taking for granted that there is some evidence of a problem. And I don't think, as we talked about earlier in the in discussion, I don't think there's significant evidence that, as uh, Trump has said, the election was stolen. I don't think that is at all established or close to being established. I don't think it's uh, uh, true. Uh, and I think the the um, the the sort of the, the worrisome part of it is we're only going to respect the government when it does things we like, and that is I think the same kind of mentality of uh, um, not abiding by the law, but it's our group who has to have a say in what happens. And if we don't like it, yeah, we, we don't want to do that. that. That's really how things. I mean, that's a, it's one marker of things disintegrating when people are rebelling against. Well, this is a rule that applies to everyone. This is the process. This is how it's established, uh, and there's some sense of objectivity to it. And, and rebelling against that because you are upset or you have some sort of arbitrary story that you tell yourself, that is a really significant problem. Do you want to take uh, some of okay. the super chat questions that we got? And thank you for the people who've been uh, contributing yeah, through super let's chat. Do let's do that. So um, one of them here is about, did Leonard Peikoff or other Trump voters associated with ARI make any statement in the wake of the riots? I, I don't know if Dr. Peikoff has made a statement or not. I know others who voted for him. I think Harry Binswanger has said that he, I think he put out a statement about his views, um, but I just, this is an opportunity to say that as an, as an organization, the Adder Institute does not speak to what people should do in the voting booth. We don't advocate for particular candidates and we can't do that. We don't have an interest in doing that. And it's not part of our mission. We speak to the philosophic issues uh, facing the world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. So I, I think that's an important point to get across. So I'm not going to tell you what I did when I voted, and I don't think Ankar is going to do that either. <laughs> but it's because it's it should be that that's sort of separate from uh, what we think is uh, going on and we want to uh, articulate. Do you want to add to that? I think Dr. Binswanger is wrote something on capitalism magazine i think that if you if someone's looking for it they can look for it but yeah i agree i mean we're not the institute isn't in the business of telling people how to vote or reflecting upon how i did vote or what i think of that now it's and as we said at the start of this this is a significant political episode that warrants real thinking and reflection and and philosophical thinking and reflection. That's what we're trying to do here. Uh, so another quick one from Super Chat. Thank you again for your support and for being with us today. Uh, could there ever be an objectivist political party? 
I think my answer is yes, there can be, uh, uh, depends on what timeline you mean and what you mean by being an objectivist political body. I think objectivism is a philosophy. It's very, it gives you broad philosophic principles for how to think about the world and including political philosophy. And it would guide whatever policies such a party would have. Uh, and there might be a political party that takes more of the philosophical foundations and it sort of brings them in. But th there's a real question of what it would look like and in what time and in, in what kind of society it would be in which that would be a viable kind of political party. But uh, I, I hope I'm interpreting sort of the, the thrust of the question. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts on that, Onkar? If, if I can guess at some of what's prompting the question, I think we've got some other questions in this vein. It's what can one do in the face of what we're facing? And we've been talking about that this, it, it's, it's depressing of where the country seems to be. And the, again, I don't think it's a majority of people in America, but it's not an insignificant minority anymore who seem open to authoritarianism and that this is politically, uh, I, if the, the weakest is politically accept this, but who really seem to want an authoritarian figure. So what can one do? I think it's important that for, so one aspect just at the political level, the, the deeper issue is that w we need better ideas, but we're at the level in politics where I think we're, it's bankrupt in terms of ideas. I think in, if we think of the two political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, they don't stand for anything. It, the, there's no ideology there. There's no, you couldn't say these are the political principles of the Democratic Party or of the Republican Party. The, if you listen to Trump's whole speech on the, the January 6th, it's amazing at how devoid of any reason of why you should support Trump. It's the crowds chanting, we love Trump, uh, we'll fight for Trump. So what, in terms of like, what ideas and principles are you trying to implement? It's so empty of that. And I think similar things are true on the Democrat side. So all that's left is my view is the institutions that we have the, and these are institutions that were created um, as part of, of the American Revolution and the, the establishment of the Constitution, that we have divided government, that we have checks and balances, that we have a Supreme Court, so, um, and that it has a real function. And as I said, I mean, part of what the, the Trump does is demonizes the Supreme Court, that they should just be rubber stamp and loyal to me because I appointed them. That's what has to be opposed now, the, that the institutions, they are part of the checks and balances, that you have a Supreme Court that's actually functioning, even if not functioning in the best way, it's far, far, far better than gangs roving around determining things. And any politician that you think and this is, he can be Republican or Democrat, that you think actually has respect for the institutions, the American institutions, and for some sense of division 
of powers and checks and balances and wants to preserve that. So the people, even if they don't fully understand, but they're outraged that there was an attack on the Capitol and that there's something like, this is not America, this is undermining our institutions, which it is. Support that kind of political candidate who you think actually um, is has some real respect for the American political institutions um, and run and avoid anyone who doesn't, who just seems after power and will do anything and will undermine the institutions. And I would put, for instance, and this has always been my view of Ted Cruz, I think he's one of the most power hungry politicians that I've ever seen. And the fact that he's Republican, you might think, oh, I lean Republican. So I would never support that. because, And I think here, what, part of what he was doing is undermining uh, the, the Senate and the role the Senate has in elections. So that for me, it's you're not at the level of supporting someone for his ideas, because our politics is so devoid of ideas, but do they actually seem to respect our institutions and want to preserve them? I want to jump to some other aspects here. So there's a question about tribalism. We, we brought that up a number of times in the conversation. Uh, and the question, I, I might try to reframe the question a bit, but let me read it out first. Um, does Ayn Rand give an answer to why there's such a consistent spectrum, despite the culture, of tribalism from left to right? Did she think people gravitated to one side or the other due to a biological temperament, or is it some other reason people become mystics of muscle or spirit, which are terms that she uses to mean different kinds of embrace of uh, irrationality, different forms of that. So maybe we should just say a word about her account of tribalism, just to set some context for people listening. And, and then if you want to dig into this, but um, I'll say one quick thing. And I have an article on Ayn Rand's view of tribalism on our journal, New Ideal, which you can find. It's called the virulent pool of tribalism, which I bring out some aspects in which Ayn Rand's view contrasts with other thinkers today who are trying to understand the phenomenon of tribalism. Because I think she has a distinctive and really profound understanding of this phenomenon. Uh, so the one of the critical things to get from her is that um, tribalism is something that occurs uh, as a result of a default in thinking. So we're responsible for our own lives and our own direction in life. And that means we have to think and make decisions and judge. And tribalism arises in a context where people are defaulting on that and they're seeking the kind of guidance and the, the, the self-worth that they would normally get if they were self-responsible and, and using their rational judgment as best they could. They're in, in not doing that or not doing that fully, they're, they're gravitating towards groups to give them that kind of guidance. And sometimes it, it, this is sort of in the context of a society that's moving towards tribalism. In societies where tribalism is fully entrenched, it's just, this is the way people operate. You, you, you're part of a group, you're, you're, you're not an individual who matters, you're subordinate to that group. So there's a lot to say about her view of tribalism, but the, the important element I wanted to draw out is this focus on a default in thinking or default in using one's rational judgment, because for her, we have free will. And so it is not, I don't think her account would be that people are drawn in one direction or another, one tribe or another, because of some um, inbuilt or biological mechanism. Uh, that's my understanding of her views, that it, it would be just, there, there be, might be other factors to how you end up in a particular tribe 
but it wouldn't be that you're in some sense determined to be that way. Uh, so Ankar, um, do you want to build on that or bring out other aspects in terms of what the question is asking? Maybe I'll say something about the, the aspect of mystics of spirit and mystics of muscle. That's terminology that comes up in Atlas Shrugged. I don't think of that as tribalism. It's more sophisticated than tribalism. And if anything, the way to view it, I think, is the when the mystics of spirit and the mystics of muscle bankrupt the culture, that what you get then is a descent into tribalism, which is a more primitive philosophy, uh, or a, it's not a philosophy, it's a more primitive viewpoint or perspective. So mystics of spirit, mystics of muscle is still an ideological viewpoint. They have a philosophical framework. If you take two of the big um, uh, mystic of spirit and a mystic of muscle in the 19th century and leading to the, 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 the horrors and political cultural horrors of the 20th century of the rise of fascism, socialism, communism, for instance. The Hegel and Marx, and Hegel, is he's a mystic of spirit. He thinks that the whole universe and existence is ruled by mind, um, and it's not even quite a personal god. It's just mind, and everything is the unfolding, and there's complex, convoluted, in the end, almost indecipherable uh, kind of mystical dogma about how this works. And there's a, it's inevitable that this is what's going to happen, but it's the playing out of a spirit across history and across the universe. It's mysticism. And it puts the spirit at the core of its alleged, uh, of its story that's allegedly about reality or existence. And the mystics of muscle or someone like Marx who stresses, I mean, Marx is Hegel, but saying, no, it's not the spirit, it's matter and muscle that drives everything. It's economic forces, it's physical labor, that's what determines everything. It's a similar story about a whole unfolding of history and capitalism is one uh, aspect of this, but it will be overcome by socialism and then will communism and the state will wither away and it's determined it's determined by muscle it's not determined by spirit but they're both mysticism but they're both there's an ideological perspective but it's a non or irrational perspective and what the result of that will be is more and more irrationality and the more and more of emptying that you anybody will take ideas seriously. I mean, Ayn Rand said Marx was the last person she could take seriously as an ideological opponent. And then it descends into more and more outright mysticism that's not even dressed up as here's a logic. I mean, the Hegel and Marx talk about dialectical logic. And then it becomes, well, the hell with logic. We don't need logic. That's a descent that you're even lower than the mystics of spirit and the mystics of muscle in Atlas Shrugged. You get the, the, the more mystic theoretical people like uh, Floyd Ferris or a uh, Dr. Stadler are replaced 
by a much more primitive tribal mentality symbolized by coffee megs in in the book and that is i think when we're talking about we've descended into tribalism we're even lower than uh when people took marx and communism seriously uh where it's even less ideological even less of a semblance of there's reasons and logic here it's just my group and to hell with your group and it's my group right or wrong and what does my group stand for no it's it's my group it's my people and that that's now you're into it's a tribe and that's a lower state so one of the questions that caught my eye here that i think is worth elevating to discussion uh and saying more about is um i guess it's seeking a takeaway or one observation from what's happening and, and the questioner asks uh, is part of the tragedy revealed by this and the significant support trump gets that so many americans are willing to believe things despite there being no evidence for them and i, I want to go to another question right after this about the evidence for the election fraud and so on, but let's just talk about this and i, I think this is one of the the uh pieces of uh, uh what's happening here is that th there is kind of an alarming uh, development that we've been, that's been happening for a long time. This is not, I don't think it started with Trump, for sure. It's been going on for a long time. That There is a kind of decay or an intellectual decline in the United States. And you can think of it as it's an epistemological problem. That's science, uh, the branch of philosophy that studies how we know and what uh, how do we sort of validate our knowledge. And that's been going on for a long, long time. And uh, some of what you've just been covering on car in terms of how we've reached the point where our society is, is very tribal. I think that is part of the story here. This is something Ayn Rand was really concerned with. And, and what we're seeing, I think, is evidence that there is a growing number of people who are uh, willing to believe things that are just not true in disregard of the need for evidence and for there to be some standard by which you judge whether what you accept is right or wrong. And, and uh, the, the, I think a big part of the story of this is, you mentioned some of the philosophical uh, figures, sort of further downstream from that is uh, a factor that Ayn Rand had a lot to say about, which is the, the degradation of the sort of the disintegration of the education system in the United States and the fact that it was, from for you know starting in the early 20th century heavily influenced by a movement called the progressive educators who in, in her analysis uh and i think it, she's right on this it, they really started breaking down the ability of students to become conceptual to be able to think abstractly to think in principles and to, to have a sense for what does it mean to judge true and false and look at the evidence and, and, and so moving away from that and sort of de demoting reason from life to a society of people who are generation after generation are leaving school with less knowledge and less ability to understand the world and to learn about what they need to know to live their lives uh, and, and consequently feeling less and less confident in their judgment and, and you can see that interplays with the dynamic that we've seen with tribalism which is if you're leaving school for you know successive generations are leaving less and less confident and more and more feeling like I need someone to tell me what to do. I need, they feel sort of a dependence. You can see how that interacts with the pull 
of tribalism, which is a tribe is an answer to that or a pseudo answer to that because it gives you this false sense of, of confidence. It gives you answers to important questions. They're not good answers. And it tells you what to do. And it's not a good guidance, but it does tell people what to do. So I think one of the, what we're seeing now is the, 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 the consequences of a century plus uh, impact on the educational system, which is itself a consequence of many, many uh, hundreds of years of the, the influence of philosophical ideas that you, as you were describing just now, Ankar, that are feeding into the culture and undermining people's ability to think and to act. And, and to me, this is one more manifestation of it. And I'll make one more plug for your article uh, on this, which is one, I hope I get the title right. You have to correct me. Uh, I think it's one step towards dictatorship. Is that right? One small step for dictatorship. One small step. That's an important, important modifier. I'm glad you reminded me of that. Uh, one small step. Uh, because that it's speaking to some of this dynamic that the questioner is asking about. So before we go to the question about evidence, but did you want to chime in on this one? I'll say one thing about the wider philosophical context, but this is just a note, I think, about how Ayn Rand looks at it and then how I look at it. It's, it's a complicated story, so it's not an argument that this is right, but it's if you want to think about this more and look into this more. I talked about Hegel and Marx in the 19th century in, a, in, a, in response to the previous question. Ayn Rand thought the most destructive figure in philosophy and indeed the most destructive or most evil figure in the history of the modern world is Immanuel Kant. And part of the way he put his project was I found it necessary to deny reason to make room for faith. And Ayn Rand saw, but she's not the only one who thinks this, that Kant is the dominant figure in philosophy in the last 200 plus years. And it's this program that has been implemented. I've, I view, and I think Ayn Rand viewed, Hegel as one person helping implement this, Marx as one. You brought up the progressive educators, uh, Alon, they're another who are Kantian inspired. And what part of what it looks like for that program or project to be succeeding is that people are now concerned with what their ideas are dogma. So what's important is, do you have the right conclusion? Not, do you have any argument reasons for holding this? It's, and I think we see this both in academia and out, and it's why we see it in our political landscape across the board. It's in academia, if you think of this, again, as I say, one way that's characterized as woke, it's so much, do you have the right conclusion? Not, do you have any reasons for this conclusion? Have you, have you really been convinced by good arguments? And so it's, do you have the right conclusion? Are you spouting the right line, the right dogma? And then if you think, and that's a, that's a, a form of religion, even if it's not put like that. And then outside of academia, there's been more and more embrace of outright religion, more acceptability to religion. Certainly from, from what I've seen in the last 30 plus years since I've been observing the political scene, explicit discussion and, and reference to religion 
is so much more respectable than it was 30 years ago. And that's, again, it's about dogma. It's about, do you hold the right conclusion? But it's, I mean, even wrong to call it a conclusion. Do you mouth the right words? I don't care how you've reached it, if you had any good reasons or so. And that is, um, that is, is one way of looking at what Kant's project was. What it means to deny reason and to make room for faith is to unleash this dogmatic, fanatical element in the world that the Enlightenment was warring against. And it's, the, it's a perspective from which that Kant philosophically is the end of the Enlightenment. So I should say we, we have more questions than I expect we'll be able to answer. So I, to those of you who aren't getting your questions answered, I, I'm sorry. Join us next time. I'm sure we'll, we'll have more to say about um, this developing issue There's from different angles uh, in subsequent podcasts. So we hope you'll join us for that. And we'll be having podcasts on, on other aspects of what happened uh, next week. I think we'll be talking about um, racism, but following that, we'll be doing some episodes about um, some of the developments on social media and free speech and, and sort of related issues. But um, let's take a few more of these questions before we have to um, wrap up. One question here, I, I just want to put it, not exactly devil's advocate, because I think the person's motivated to sort of understand what is going on with the, our discussion of evidence and the arbitrary and uh, the arbitrary assertion of evidence, which we covered it a little earlier in the discussion. So I'm not sure if the question was on during that time, but let's just put this question in terms of what would it look like if a lot of people in the country had um, concerns about the election process? And so if you think that there's different processes in different states and so on, what would it look like and what would they, what would be appropriate for them to do uh, so I'm taking the question, sort of building on that. Um, what would it look like? And I think we agree it would not look like the storming of the Capitol. Um, I think that we put that aside. But what, what do you think they should they do? And then, so related to that is, what would you count as evidence for their concern? Like, should they be concerned about X? What would it, what would rise to the level of, yes, th there's something going on here. Let's let's figure out how to deal with it. Um. So. If you, if you take the widest kind of element of the question, do I think from what I've seen, and it's I don't have much knowledge about this, and I think most of the people talking about it don't have much knowledge of the election process, of how it works in different states, what is done and what is not done. The, but do I think there's problems in the whole setup of how voting works in the US? I certainly think there is. It's one of the things, so I'm not a US, I wasn't born in the US, I came from Canada. One of the things that surprised me about the US is how Mickey Mouse, some of the, 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 the system around elections and registering voters and so on, seems to be so, the, do I think there's some problems and or do, do I think it's an optimal system that it couldn't be improved? I do not think that at all. That's different than thinking there's some particular fraud and, and, and then Trump's um, the part of, again, if you listen to the whole speech on the sixth is not, we need an investigation. There's some problems. Who knows what we'll find? It's, we know we had a landslide. 
it's basically every illegitimate that so he that he will classify as illegitimate or illegal vote was a vote for Biden. Like it, it's it's as though there couldn't be any illegal stuff going on that was uh, aided Trump. And this plays into the idea that it's it's the Democrats, the radical left, they're corrupt, always engage in criminal activity, not our side. And like your side, two hours later, elements of it storms the Capitol. So the idea that if even if you thought there was some, um, the, the, there's some things that warrant more investigation, that you could go from that to, yeah, well, we know Trump won in a landslide is completely arbitrary. But then when it's even at the level of, is there things for further investigation? So one, this is the province of the states. Many states did do further investigations. Again, if you listen to the um, Georgia call that Trump had, and if you think like, who knows more about what is going on? It's clearly the officials from Georgia who know and who have done investigations. It doesn't mean they're right about everything, but Trump and his side don't know anything. And then if you couple it with, this isn't, uh, as I said, I think you have to view everything Trump says as arbitrary. It's, I've got no evidence. I don't care if I have any evidence for that. I'm gonna say it because this is what I feel. And just on the issue of voter fraud, he said this all many times and, and like, so close to what he says now. It's he said that um, there were machines that were changing the vote from Romney to Obama when he lost the Iowa caucus. It was Cruz cheated and, and and stole this election, and we either need a new election or we have to declare that Cruz's results are nullified. When Hillary beat him in the popular vote, it's millions of fraud votes, and he has no evidence for any of this. It's this is what he feels. And this is what he says. So the idea that um, the that what is being advanced, that there's actual evidence for, and that Trump is concerned with, like, is there evidence for this or not? I think that you're delusional if you think that that's what he cares about. And then the fact that the courts have dismissed all this, I think it's important to get that most of the dismissals are not... Um, we're ruling against you. It's that there's you haven't even brought sufficient evidence to have a hearing to decide, okay, so there's a possibility to what you're alleging. Can you now fully establish it? And what does the other side say? And so and so you have a court case where there's two sides presenting their evidence and counter arguments and so on. It's the courts have ruled there's not even that when and when you see some of the decisions, it's Basically, it's not put exactly like this, but it's basically your claim is arbitrary. You haven't given any evidence or any um, legal, logical argument for what you're doing. And it's when you have all of that, you're in the presence of the arbitrary. So two more issues. Let's let me just flag them and then we'll take them one at a time. One is uh, what can what can be done? What what what's the direction here? and what would be some steps that people can do or what, what needs to happen. And then related to that, so the, the topic I wanna to turn to first is, uh, we talked about responsibility and you made the distinction between moral responsibility and legal responsibility. And as we're speaking right now, 
Uh, I believe there's a vote happening on impeachment. There's an article being presented, and there's a, there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen uh, to President Trump in, in the wake of all this. So let's take one of the questions connected to that. So do you think uh, it's a good thing for the country if Trump is impeached and convicted? And then there's a separate question I'm going to add to that, which is, and then beyond being convicted, should anything else happen? Is there some penalty uh, that you think is reasonable? Uh, and then um, th there's other questions sort of flowing out of that, but let's just start with that in terms of what should, what do you think would be important here? Um, yeah, you should say what you think about this, Alon. I mean, my view is the, it's, I think these are the two best possibilities. Either that we move to a Biden administration and Biden presidency on the 20th and nothing further is done. And the last, the kind of image or episode that sums up the nature of Trump's campaign is the terrorist attack on the Capitol. And that if people want to vote again for Trump, it is, this is what you're voting for. Or if he's impeached, and I think this would be better, but I think this is unlikely to happen. Even if he's impeached, it has to be that he's barred from holding political office. Or, uh, or at the federal level of holding political office. And if it's not that, I worry that he will become more of a martyr figure and it's more likely that he will get elected. It's look how much they had it in for him. He's the only president who's been impeached twice. So, so if, it, if it doesn't bar him from holding political office, I think it's better that this last thing that sums up his um, the, 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 the philosophic nature of his administration and campaign is the attack on the Capitol. Yeah, I would add to that, that for me, I don't know which is the more likely to happen. I think what needs to happen, one of the outcomes of this, when people have, have had time to reflect on it and to act in, in view of their judgment, I think the key thing that needs to come out of this, the lesson and, and the, the sort of the, the main uh, takeaway for people is that we need to push back on this trend in which physical, vi physical force and violence are, have become normalized and that they've become acceptable. Because my worry has been in the last days is that now we have it from every direction that people are using physical force to push forward their what they think of as their political goals and their agenda. And it is that we can't live in a society where that's happening. And it's gonna feed on itself, I think, uh, for various reasons, there's dynamics behind that. And that's the main thing that I, I think has to be uh, opposed and overturned and, and denormalized or, or, or uh, de sort of the, the sanction of that has to be removed and, and in the most forceful way possible and explicitly to re so it has to be framed and articulated as there is no place for this in society. A good society, a free society is one from which force has been extracted. And that is what the original American model was of government was designed to do. I think there's still, it's still the best model that I've ever seen. I think it's the one that we need to help preserve and reinforce and, and bring back to its uh, founding principles of individualism and 
and the, the idea that freedom is the purpose, the government is there to protect our freedom. If we, we hope to get to that point. The, the key thing that has to come out of this is there's no place for what we saw uh, uh, last week at the Capitol. There's no place for that. And, and it is going to be dealt with through the, the means of the law and objectively. And people who do this will be punished. There will be no whitewashing. There'll be no soft peddling. And, and that's true. We, there, there, it, it's going to take more than just one instance, but it has to be a concerted effort. Um, so, you know, people have to take this as part of what we need to change in, in our culture. Uh, and I think I, I would like to see Trump no longer a, a political actor in the future. I think that would be better for the, the society for the reasons you've made. You mentioned the, the, the sort of philosophic reasons, which are he is a fount of arbitrary claims that I think pollutes the political landscape. And I think it, it drives this, uh, our to the extent that we have a political culture that is um, ongoing, um, it, it, I think it, it's, a, it's a pollutant and it's not a good thing to have it be normal that you hear the president just stating things that are plainly false and he knows they're false. That's really destructive. So, I mean, there's sort of the Trump side of this issue and then there's sort of the wider cultural thing that I think would, would be important to move in, in a direction to counter this whole normalizing of physical force. Mm -hmm. uh, let's, let's try to wrap up. I think one of the questions that um, a lot of people will probably ask themselves, and, and so this has been a depressing discussion, I have to admit, more so than others that we've had. Uh, and it's, it's kind of raw in the sense that it's ongoing and it, there's still more that's being learned, I think. And, uh, but there, there is, I think, it's worth talking about what can be done. What what is what direction can we take from here? What are important things to do? So we, I just mentioned a few things that I think have to come out to the immediate moment. But just um, where do we go from here? I guess is the next question. I'd say, well, at least two things. So, sort of putting it negatively don't be tribal and don't demonize. So I don't think the majority of Americans support on either side, support the, if you put it just as the, 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 the fanatical Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol and they're willing to go all the way to terrorism or the, um, fanatical Black Lives Matter protesters and we need to abolish the police and that form of terror. I don't think Amer the majority of Americans support either, but they need to hear better ideas. And the more you treat people as tribal, it's like they, you, they say one thing that you don't agree with or seems to put them as, oh, so you agree with something for someone from Black Lives Matter says or something, then I've now, okay, you're in that, I've pigeonholed you into that and so on. The more you treat people as the, they're just a member of a tribe, the more that's the, what they will become. The more the only defense that it seems or the a plausible defense when you start treating other people as you're just a member of a tribe. I've scapegoated you. I know everything about you from one thing you said. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm demonizing you. You're the enemy. 
the def plausible defense about that is, oh, I guess I need to join a tribe that's going to defend me against you. And so, so the more you treat people like that, the more it becomes self-reinforcing. So on the negative side, it, it's the don't demonize people and the people you disagree with. There are some who are really bad, really evil. And as we said, I mean, there, there's, we've seen, uh, as they put it, domestic terrorism a, a fair amount in the 2020 and then, in it, and then into 2021. And that's a real problem, but it's not as though everybody supports this. And if you're trying to win over the people who don't support it, the negative is don't treat them as tribal and as though they do support it when they don't. And the positive is the, I think at a deep level, the Ayn Rand and objectivism or is the only philosophical ideological viewpoint that really understands the achievement of the US. And there's still enough Americans who think for partly intellectual and partly emotional reasons that there's something distinctive and exceptional about America, and there is, and you're trying to give them the better ideas. And it's, Rand and objectivism have a profound understanding of America as the nation of the enlightenment. And the more you can convey that to people, and then the way in which what is going on across the political spectrum, and then more broadly culturally, is doing away with that, the more you can uh, educate and arm people to be immune to the tribes that are um, increasingly uh, wandering through American culture. I agree with that. And I, I would just amplify or give a different angle on the same one of the aspects of the point you made, which is, uh, I think that, so I, I started the conversation by saying how upset I was and I actually had, I mean, it, it's strange to say, it really disturbed me in a way that nothing in the long time has done. Uh, but I, I actually now with some time to reflect on it and think and discuss, I think there, there's a lot to be done. And I think a big part of that is what we do at the Ayn Rand Institute, which is to educate people about a philosophy, a whole way of looking at the world that doesn't treat you as a cog in some vast tribe, as an unthinking cell in some big organism, but as an individual whose life matters to themselves and who, who has a rational mind that they can use and who can guide themselves to the success and the achieving of their own conception of happiness. And to me, that, as you said, it, this really is consonant with, and it's, I think, the needed foundation, a missing piece from the foundation of America, which was which Ayn Rand herself thought America was a tremendous achievement, but it was missing a philosophical element, which I think her philosophy uh, actually does provide. So I, I find that the work of educating people about that option, that there's a different way. We don't have to be choosing tribes. We can be individuals. We can have recognize the value of each person that they have achieved and not be locked in this world. There's more options and individualism as an ideal is something that Ayn Rand, it's all over her fiction and it is at the core of her philosophies. And to me, that is something we can hold out to people 
as something to, to work toward and to understand and to bring back in a sense, not that Ayn Rand's ideas were around at the Enlightenment, but her ideas are consistent with and, and really supportive of some of the best trends in the Enlightenment, which was when America was founded. So to me, part of what needs to happen is that Ayn Rand's ideas need to be better understood, more widely heard. And, and I, I think it's important that people recognize that the Ayn Rand Institute is, is the place that is doing that work. And I'm, I'm really proud to be part of the Institute and I hope uh, all of you who are listening to us will find what we do valuable. Finally, if you have ideas for what we should cover in this uh, podcast, please write to us, newideal at aynrand.org. Uh, I hope you found it useful and valuable. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Ankar. Thanks. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.